Thinner Logs is a Chicago-based sketch group that writes comedy grounded in shared true, personal stories about our existence as lifelong nerds. We started your stories to give everyone a chance to do what we do, share their own stories, and foster a more heartfelt, welcoming nerd community. Your Stories is about embracing the weird and obscure in your life and asserting your geekdom with a group that gets your references. And, most importantly, Your Stories is a place to bring people up, not to put anyone down. Hi everyone, my name is Eric Garneau, and this is part one of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories December podcast, featuring the theme of Across the Universe. On these episodes, we're joined by some really special and talented guests from Chicago's artistic community, including some of the fantastic people behind Improvised Star Trek podcast and a Klingon Christmas Carol, hence the theme Across the Universe. Uh, there's so, so much good stuff in this episode from speakers Julia Weiss, Drew Creel, Gene Monfort, Sean Kelly, and Christopher Kittermolstrom. Plus, you get the usual music from myself, Dwight Hassler, and Claire Friedman. This was a really fun one to record, and I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to it. Uh, if you like your stories, the last recording of the year is coming up this Sunday, December 15th, 6 p.m. at the Public House Theater, 3914 North Clark Street in Chicago. The theme of the show is Annual 2, because guess what? This month, our podcast is two years old. So come share a story about whatever the word annual makes you think of, and maybe get on a podcast. Uh, then stick around for some brand new Nerdalogs material in the Plan 9 Burlesque Holiday Cabaret, which is happening right after your stories wraps in the same theater. You can't beat that. Uh, speaking of annuals, our second annual Best of Your Stories episode is coming up really soon. But it's not too late to let me know your favorite stories from the past year, uh, which includes everything from 2012's Annual 2 episode to the last one that dropped on other options. Uh, if you want to nominate some of your favorites, just drop us a line on our Facebook page or leave a comment on the podcast blog at yourstories.podbean.com. That's all the info I've got to dump on you for now, so as always, please enjoy the show! So, we're a lot of things, this group of people, and sometimes what we are, are people who take, uh, we take requests every once in a while. This is a request that Kevin Budnick had. He posted it on our Facebook wall, yes. and, uh, we were thinking about doing it anyway, and Kevin just sealed the deal for us, so. Everybody lives on a street in a city or a village or a town for what it's worth. And they're all inside a country which is part of a continent that sits upon a planet known as Earth. And the Earth is a ball full of oceans and some mountains which is out there spinning silently in space. And living on that Earth are the plants and the animals and also the entire human race. It's a great big universe and we're all really puny. We're just tiny little specks about the size of Mickey Rooney. It's big and black and inky and we're real small and dinky. It's a big universe and we're not. And we're all... <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to start again. And we're part of a vast interplanetary system stretching 700 billion miles long. With my planets and a sun, we think Earth the only one that has life on it, although we could be wrong. Across the interstellar voids are million asteroids, including millions, meteors, and hillies coming too. And there's over 50 moons floating out there like balloons in a panoramic trillion mile view. And still it's all a speck amid a hundred billion stars in a galaxy we call the Milky Way. It's 60,000 trillion miles from one end to the other, and still that's just a fraction of the way. 
Cause there's a hundred billion galaxies that stretch across the sky Filled with constellations, planets, moons, and stars And still the universe extends to a place that never ends Which is maybe just inside a little jar It's a great big universe and we're all really keen We're just tiny little specks about the size of Mickey Rooney Though we don't know how we got here We're important part here It's a big universe Yeah, it goes Universe for Animaniacs. That's what that was. Guys, Animaniacs is a really great show. Hey, uh, can I intro the next one then go sit down? Yeah, do you want to... You have some cool trivia about that last song, though. Do you want to share that trivia? What's my trivia? That you looked up on Wikipedia and you said it had a different ending line? Oh, yeah, it had a different ending line. So, the actual ending... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, the actual... <laughs> guy draw the lights? Yeah, guy draw the lights. Uh, so, the, the ending that we just sang is, uh, though we don't know how it got here, we're an important part here. It's a big universe, and it's ours. Uh, and the original ending was... Uh, I'm trying to remember it exactly. Though you think you're... Though we think we're all essential, we're... We're all inconsequential. We're all, in- in- we're all inconsequential. Uh, and... Like, your life doesn't matter at all. Was, like, the end. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently they needed to take that out of the children's show. Animaniacs, which has some of the greatest adult jokes ever. Google. Fingerprints. Fingerprints. Which is a great show. Can I intro this song? You may. Did you already ask that? <laughs> yeah, you did. Um, okay. Uh, I want to intro this song because uh, Dwight suggested it. And he just sings it so well. I just want everyone to appreciate for a second that, uh, as we also learned earlier today, this band is still touring, and White should be their lead singer. They just put out a great set record a couple... And as uh, White also said earlier today, he would make the same amount of money he does now. (laughs) This shit is so metal, guys. Joe, come on to buy the world that talks and teach the world to sing in perfect harmony and teach the world to snuff the fires and the liars. Hey, I know it's just a song, but it's fun for the recipe. This is a love attack. I know it out, but it's back. It's just like any fat. It retracts before impact. And just like fashion, it's a passion for the wicked in him. If you got the goods, they'll come and buy it just to Stay in the click So don't delay Act now Supplies are running out Allow it You're still alive Six to eight years to arrive And if you swallow There may be a tomorrow But if the hour is short You might as well be walking on the sun Twenty-five years ago, they spoke out and they broke out of recession and oppression. And together they talked and they folk out with guitars around the bonfires. Just singing and clapping, man, what the hell happened? Then some were spellbound, some were hellbound, some they fell down and some got Back up and fought back against the mouth And the kids were hippie chicks Or hypocrites Because fashion is fashion The true meaning of it So don't delay Act now, supplies are running out Allow if you're still alive Six to eight years to arrive And if you follow There may be a tomorrow But if the other 
joke when a mama's handkerchief is soaked with the tears because a baby's life has been revoked. The bond is broke up so choke up and foe gets on the close-up Mr. Wizard can't be formed. No God like Hocus Pocus so don't sit back, kick back and watch the world get bushwhacked. News and tell your neighborhood is under attack. Put away the crack before the crack Put you away, you need to be there when your baby's old enough to relax. Don't delay, announce the plot of running out. Allow if you're still alive, six to eight years to arrive. And if you swallow, they may be up tomorrow, but if the option, you might as well be walking on the sun. You might as well be walking on the sun. You might as well be walking on the sun You might as well be walking on the sun Somebody wants Do I have some, everybody? I think Dwight should first be the lead singer of live, though. That might actually oh, yeah. pay real money. <laughs> Play Lightning Crashes for you sometime if you ask nice. But first, we have more stories this half, starting with another member of Improvised Star Trek, Ms. Julia Weiss, everybody. Yeah. Oh, hello. Um, I'm Julia Weiss. Uh, when I was a child... I uh, consistently had pretty terrible dreams, and often these dreams would involve uh, someone coming to kill me or my family, Um, but I always would uh, protect us, and because as a girl growing up in this America, um, I was exposed to maybe too many sexual messages, so the way I would protect me or my family would would be by... uh, Giving pretty highly sexual neck rubs <laughs> to these bad guys, um, and usually there were there were four main uh, nightmares that I would have in which I would have to give these sexual neck rubs. Uh, oftentimes, I would have dreams where fawns, f a u n, not f a w n's, would come uh, to to harm. Me and mine, um, and I think this is because I watched that BBC Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and you know Mr. Tumnus wanted to fuck Lucy. <laughs> you know that, and don't tell me that that fawn did not want to do the nasty with that little British girl. He, and, and that got in my brain, and so he was always coming, and it was always very predatory, and so I would his creepy goat horned oh, body, these neck rubs, and then we'd be fine. He wouldn't hurt us. I, <laughs> I regularly had to seduce. Uh, I regularly had to seduce Frankenstein's monster. Um, I can still feel. I don't think I've had one of these dreams since I was eight, but I can still feel his like sweaty, prickly neck, which felt like pube stubble, <laughs> like hot, wet pube stubble. Um, another another major bad guy who I had to seduce. Uh, often was Hitler, uh, who was surprisingly.
extremely keen on the touch of an eight-year-old Jewish girl. <laughs> <laughs> but there was one group of predators that I knew I could not seduce, and that was aliens. <laughs> when the aliens would come, I hid. Uh, I knew not to try to seduce them because they were not human. Fawns, they're at least part human. Frankenstein's monster is human parts. Uh, Hitler got his dick wet. I knew I had a chance with them. But aliens, aliens were unknown. I don't even know if they had dicks. And I... I remember the alien dreams started after my parents were watching some fucking miniseries. I feel like all TV in the early 90s was Rescue 911 or miniseries. And I don't even know what it was, but this woman like heard these sounds, and she looked out her window, and there were weird lights outside. She was like, oh, well, what are these utility men working on at this hour? Then one of them looked up, and it wasn't a fucking person. It was an alien. And she was like, oh, my God. And I, I, my stomach dropped when I watched it. And she, like, ran downstairs, and she hid between, like, a fucking cabinet in the fridge or something, and then, like, you just see, like, this alien come into the house, and she's she's nestled down there, and you're like, bitch, you're done. <laughs> this alien knows. And he did. I say he. I shouldn't. I don't... <laughs> I, now, in my enlightened adulthood, I like to think that aliens have at least progressed beyond gender-specific pronouns. <laughs> um, or maybe beyond gender. But that's a different conversation. <laughs> the point is, is I, was, I had this crippling fear of aliens. And the most common dream I had about aliens uh, was inspired by that. They would, I would know they were coming. Usually because these weird little cinnamon bun, like, or like ringworm, like these little white spirals in the sky, tiny ones, I would see them everywhere, and I knew those were alien spaceships, which meant I had to hide, um, even though I knew that hiding was futile because that fucking woman was found. Uh, and then, like, they're always probing. Probing is a big thing with aliens, and I knew I didn't want that. Look what happened to Lucy. Um, but... Uh, I would, I would hide next to this lavender bush that was next to the, the house I grew up in. And I would be hiding there, nestled between lemon balm and mint, under sweet-smelling, or lilac, I may have said lavender, mint lilac bush. And uh, I would be, like, nestled under there, and I would see these aliens. They were always, like, white and translucent, which is maybe a Hitler metaphor, and they would be, like, stalking around through my mom's garden, and I'd be like, stay quiet, and they won't find you, which I'm realizing a lot of, like, Holocaust scenes, <laughs> which I'm going to need to work on in my brain later. But I, would, I was hiding, and then all, out of a sight I wasn't even looking at, an alien would come and find me. And in my daily life, my waking hours, I would try to preempt these attacks and make it so they wouldn't happen by telling my neighbors that I had already been abducted by aliens and had survived. I would walk through my neighborhood saying, oh, I was abducted by aliens last night. 
just to get that out into the universe so that maybe the aliens wouldn't come. Because I can't seduce them, so I have to trick them. Because in our country, those are the two ways you deal with problems. (laughs) And so far, it's worked. Um, I... I haven't had to confront an alien in my real life, so far as I know, but I did a couple weeks ago. I was walking with my nephew, uh, who is seven years old and a perfect human, Um, and I looked up in the sky, and I saw one of those little swirls, and I was like, oh, fuck, it's happening. (laughs) But when you're a caregiver for a child, you can't show your fear, especially when that fear is a weird-shaped cloud that vaguely reminds you of a nightmare you had as a child that was based on nothing real. So I kept my composure, but I had this moment of like, fuck, if the alien comes, how am I going to protect my nephew because I know that motherfucker doesn't want a sexy back rub. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Julia. That was awesome. I, I went to college with a dude who swore that he like legit was abducted by aliens. He's one of the craziest guys I ever met. I worked with him at, at a radio, uh, the college radio station. And when I said to him, Travis, I think if I had a radar for every human being I knew, your blip would be shaped like a question mark. And he looked at me and he goes, good. <laughs> so, <laughs> Travis Wayne Hurt, one of my favorite people in the world. All right, coming up next, a newcomer to your story is a good friend of mine. We play Magic the Gathering a lot together. He's also part of the Muscular Clown Sketch Video Trio, Drew Creel. Hello. Hi, I'm Drew Creel. Um, two things. First, what I have to say tonight is largely a quotation, so don't give me writer's credit for this. Uh, secondly, I actually intended this to be for the Journeys Your Story like months ago, and I've just kind of waited for a night that actually fit the theme, and tonight's the night, so here we go. All right, so in 1977, um, a journey started. It is still going on today. It is perhaps the farthest journey that human intention and willpower has ever taken, and its current travel distance, speak of you know, improbable or uncomprehensible numbers is uh, 11 billion miles uh, currently. And um, I'm, of course, talking about Voyager 1, the NASA space probe, which this year was confirmed to cross the heliosphere into interstellar space, uh, what is considered the very boundaries of our solar system. And even though it is traveling at 10 miles a second, it will still take 44,000 years for it to reach our nearest neighboring star. That's, that's four times as long as human culture existed. Um, well, let's rewind to when the probe wasn't so far away, maybe a mere four billion miles. Um, just passing Saturn, the probe was ordered to take a picture of Earth. Um, this is that picture. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here we go. Uh, I, I realize it's a problem now for those listening, but I have a picture that is, um, you know, the size of a piece of paper. And can you guys even see the Earth? Yeah. Yeah, you can. Front row can. No. Um, I will point it out. It's right. It's it is here, right below my fingertip. This little 
tiny pixel. Um, due to the due to a reflection of light off the spacecraft, it appears as if the Earth is sitting in a beam of light, as if there's some special significance to our tiny world. But it's just an accident of geometry and optics. Um, there's no sign of humans in this picture. Not our reworking of the Earth's surface, not our machines, not ourselves. From this vantage point, our obsession with nationalism is nowhere in evidence. We are too small. On the scale of worlds, humans are inconsequential, as the Animaniacs should have should have pointed out. <laughs> everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being that ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every supreme being, every superstar, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mode of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the endless cruelties visited by one corner of this pixel compared to the scarcely indistinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager we are to kill one another. How fervent our hatreds. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Our, our postures, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe is challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. Um, there is perhaps no better demonstration of the follies that humans conceit than this distant image of our tiny world. It underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the only home we've ever known. The Pale Blue Dot. Carl Sagan. <laughs> Thank you, dude. That was sweet. How long until Voyager 1 finds the Borg? <laughs> it, 
It was. <laughs> if you watch the Blu-ray for Trek One, they straight out say like, "Yeah, this is the Borg." It's funny that that has become continuity through special features. <laughs> if, it, if it wasn't obvious enough in what you saw in the movies. Anyway, speaking of Star Trek, guys, we have someone else from Klingon Christmas Carol here. This is Gene White. Uh, Gene Montfort. I'm sorry. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Yes. All right. My Fairfield in notes. Okay, hi. My name is Jean, and I have a vivid imagination. Yeah. Um, across the universe, for me, sort of took me inside my own head and the idea that I believe that the human mind can create an infinite number of universes within itself. And to illustrate that, I have two examples from my own childhood and later adolescence. When I was eight, and we'll say eight because I really don't know how old I was, but I was young, my family went to Disney World in Florida, and I went on the human body experience mm-hmm. at Epcot. If you're not familiar with the human body experience, they shrink you down to the size of a blood cell, mm-hmm. and you go into a body. <laughs> and it's for real, you guys. <laughs> I was the size of a blood cell. And there were macrophages. And the macrophages attacked us because we were a foreign object. And when I left the human body experience at Epcot, I was crying. And my mother was trying to console me. She did not go on the human body experience. And she kept telling me, no, no, Jean, Jean, it's not real, it's not real. And I, with a you know thousand-yard stare of a Vietnam vet, went, Mom, you weren't there. <laughs> You don't know. You didn't, you didn't have to deal with it. Man, I saw things, man. There were white blood cells, and there was this splinter that we had to remove. It was, it was intense. Fast forward 10 years. I'm an adult now, sort of. I'm 18. I like to think I'm an adult. We're in Las Vegas, and I am going to go on the Star Trek experience at the Hilton. <laughs> it's pretty cool, I know. <laughs> If you're, if you didn't get a chance to do the Star Trek experience at the Hilton Casino in Las Vegas, it is a history of Star Trek, complete with an interactive experience of being on the Enterprise. So we're walking through this really long line and like you see like props from the movies and props from the shows and the timeline. And my sister has heard the story of the human body experience and so she keeps asking me, are you going to (laughs) cry? You're going to cry, aren't you? I'm like, no, shut up. No. Uh, so we go on, and we meet the officer who takes us into the shuttle. Blue shirt, not red shirt. So I was feeling pretty confident. <laughs> and they sit you down in a shuttle, and then the screen comes on, and you're in the stars. And they're beautiful, you guys. The stars are beautiful when you're up among them. Just, it's like everything you ever wished it would be. And, you know, and I'm cool, and I'm just thinking, I'm, I've got this. I'm so not involved in what's going on. (laughs) I'm so detached, man. I'm thinking about buffets. I am not in the moment. And all of a sudden, the red alert goes off. You know, I'm like, no, I'm cool. That's not real. And Riker shows up on screen. And I go, oh, God, it's Riker. And and I go, and then another part of me goes, no, that's Jonathan Frakes. And I'm like, no, it's Riker. Shit. 
things have gone wrong, and the Borg are attacking us. Yes, I know it's a, it's apropos from what was just was just discussed. The Borg are attacking us, and at this point, I feel it's important to understand what my internal dialogue was like going up into the moment when the Borg attacked us and our tiny little shuttle up in the stars. There's this part of me that's going, I know this is not real. This is not real. And then there's another part of me, and we'll call it like my lizard brain. It's going, it's kind of real. <laughs> so it's, it, it looks real. I mean, like, look, there's like stuff blowing up. Oh my God! All right, calm down. Will you calm down? Jesus, it, you're on a ride, but how do you know? <laughs> because you sat down in here. You were just out in the casino. <sighs> but there's things exploding. There's debris. We're going to hit the debris. And about this point, it didn't matter that our little shuttle was like leaving the Enterprise and that somehow we wound up from the stars onto the Las Vegas Strip. My brain was in the moment all of a sudden, and I just started crying. (laughs) Because, guys, you weren't there. (laughs) You don't know. Those Borg were frightening. They're there with their robotic arms, and there's Riker. I mean, Jonathan Frakes. I mean, Riker. (laughs) Telling us we've got to evacuate and escape. And I just couldn't handle it. It was just, it was very real. My imagination decided that I was surviving a Borg attack at the age of 18 at the Las Vegas Hilton, simultaneously the upper atmosphere, simultaneously somewhere inside the deep recesses of my lizard brain, which was all about survival at that point. You know, everybody else is laughing. I'm just there going, oh my God. (laughs) And later... As I sat trying to desperately wipe the tears away from my face, uh, my sister looking at me expectantly with that kind of like, oh, you're never living this down <laughs> forever. And we're in the gift shop, and I've got my head down, and I'm buying my uh, gold-pressed latinum chocolate bars <laughs> to make myself feel better and some and a Federation shot glass. because, And I'm just not looking at the Klingons who are towering over me in their prosthetic. I'm just like, don't look at me. I didn't think it was really real for real I just thought it was a little bit real um, I was so embarrassed at the time in retrospect I kind of I look at it and I'm reminded and I debated putting this into the story because I felt like it was a little pretentious um, but I'm going to do it anyway because who doesn't like a little pretension um, Hamlet right <laughs> Hamlet says, oh God, oh God, oh God, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space. I was, I could one up Hamlet. I can be bounded in a mock shuttle and believe I am the size of a human blood cell (laughs) or that I am actually traveling amid the stars. And I think that even though I was embarrassed, I think that illustrates the joy of the human imagination and our ability to be at once bound to the earth and be capable of seeing the farthest reaches of space. So that is my story. (laughs) Thank you so much, Gene.
Uh, the last time I was in Vegas was literally 10 days after the Star Trek experience closed. And the reason that I was in Vegas was for the Diamond Comics Retailer Summit 2008. They couldn't hold on for 10 fucking days for <laughs> hundreds of comic book retailers. Like, they would have kept you going for months more. God damn it. Anyway... Got a couple more speakers tonight. Uh, also from Improvised Star Trek, Mr. Sean Kelly. <laughs> and a fucking rocking Decepticon t-shirt. Transformers are also cool. Uh, yeah, so I was thinking about the theme across the universe, and uh, obviously I'm in a Improvised Star Trek podcast, uh, and I like outer space and stuff like that, but I... I I just couldn't stop thinking about uh, the phrase as uh, like a metaphor rather than, excuse me, uh, rather than thinking about it as a literal talking about space. And I, I just kind of started thinking about space and uh, time and distance. And so this is kind of a, a time and distance story, but it's also a, a love story. Uh, so I, I am married. Uh, my wife... Uh, thanks. Uh, as, as someone whose primary life accomplishments include being on an improvised Star Trek podcast and owning almost every X-Men comic written in the last 23 years, uh, you should probably understand that that's pretty impressive. So, uh, so I, I met my, I met my now wife, Chelsea, when we were both 18, uh, we had each enrolled at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and we were at freshman orientation, and we were both theater students, so we met uh, with some other theater students, uh, and I don't, I, I only barely remember meeting her and being introduced to her, and uh, so we knew each other through the theater department, and we had a lot of mutual friends, and so uh, we hung out, and we went to parties, and we did shows together, she was in a production of... Uh, the crucible uh, that I was a stagehand for, and you know, while she was doing her show, I was gambling for candy behind the stage. Uh, and so, so uh, my initial impression of my wife Chelsea, who thankfully is not here when I say this, is was that she was very boring. Uh, I I thought she was very she was very quiet. And she was very reserved, and she just didn't seem that interesting to me at the time. And so, uh, fast forward to our our junior year in college, we were in a class together called uh, Weather and Art Atmosphere, which was a science class that you took if you were a theater major. Uh, and... Uh, so we were both in that class, and it actually ended up being a really, really hard class because we talked a lot about the math behind weather patterns, uh, and my artistic theater major brain had a hard time uh, comprehending that. So the way my wife tells the story about us falling in love is in that class, we would get together with some of the other theater majors, and we would talk, and she and I discovered that we had all of these mutual interests. Like, we both liked the same kind of music, and she liked books, and I liked books, and we both had glasses, and, <laughs> like, all of this other stuff. And so that's, you know, her version of the story. My version of the story is that I was dating this other girl uh, from Brandeis, uh, and then... At the end of the semester, we got really, really drunk at a party, 
and I ended up making out with Chelsea uh, at the party while I was kind of cheating on this other girl uh, who I was <laughs> who I was kind of dating and who was really nice and didn't deserve to be cheated on. Uh, and so, but to Chelsea, it was like, oh, but we were falling in love, and this was the, you know, <laughs> that was the first time that our drunk love brains said they should get together, whereas, like, I was like, I'm 19, and I just did an amazing improv show, and I can have any any woman I want, because I made you all laugh. Uh, that was the, literally the first and last night I ever had that thought. It was <laughs> It was, it was my very first really good improv show, and uh, I, I remember thinking like, "Oh man, all these girls want me." I've never, I've literally never thought that once since. But so uh, we we came back. Uh, I'm no, I'm sorry. That was at the end of sophomore year. So we came back for junior year. And we started getting drunk and hooking up at parties all the time. Uh, and so, you know, eventually I was like, look, we keep getting drunk and hooking up at parties. Maybe we should date. And she was like, yeah, let's do that. And so we started dating. But I, I, I told her, I was like, there's, a, there's an expiry date on this relationship because I – am going to move to Chicago to become a famous long-form improviser. Uh, at, at the end of the year, I'm doing this domestic student exchange program thing because all of my friends are a year older than me, and I'll, I'll be damned if I'm not going to go to Chicago to become a famous long-form improviser with them. And so I... Uh, so... We, we were dating, and, you know, it was always just supposed, to me, it was always just supposed to be, like, a fun thing, but, you know, we would go to movies, and we would do all the stuff together, and I remember being, there was a bomb threat at our fine arts center, and uh, we went to see Red Dragon, and, uh, I think it was Red Dragon, yeah, it was Red Dragon, and so we were going to see this movie, and I remember, like, watching her orange and wa- order an Orange Julius at the mall, and re- I remember thinking, this was about, like, six weeks into the relationship. I was like, oh, no, I'm in love. Uh, Like, oh, holy shit, I can't be in love. I have to leave. Uh, And, you know, maybe like two weeks later, we were in my dorm room, and we were watching... We were not watching The Fellowship of the Ring. We were watching the appendices on the extended DVD of Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, and it was a full moon, and it was a clear night, and I was just like, ah, I love you. And I started crying, and she said, I love you, and she started crying. Uh, and, you know, and, and you know, we, we were basically like, I, I was like, I don't know what to do. I have to leave. I can't stay. I'm not going to stay here. And she said, I will go with you. She said, I will go with you to Chicago. She she had to take a, an extra year. She had two degrees because she's much smarter than I am. Uh, so she got a practical degree along with her theater degree. And uh, she – so she took an extra year. So we spent a year apart. And that's why this is kind of a story of uh, time and distance in that, you know, normally when you tell the story about – moving away from college and, you know, you had this college girlfriend and you were like, we're going to spend a year apart. We're going to do the long distance thing and see how that works out. The story ends with you breaking up because the long distance thing is stupid and no one should do it ever. Uh, and, but she did, we did spend this year apart. I moved out to Chicago. She spent a year finishing up her degrees. 
Uh, and then she came out here and moved in with me, and we lived together, and uh, everything worked out. <laughs> like that's that's not the way that story is supposed to end. Uh, you know, she uh, we. We lived together for a long time. We were boyfriend and girlfriend for a really long time. Uh, and then when, uh, about two, three years ago, we got engaged, I proposed to her. I had finally saved up enough money on my meager salary as a, a marketing and customer service person for an encyclopedia company. Uh, and I proposed to her, and she said yes, and she said, let's have a steampunk themed wedding. And I said, I love you so much. Uh, and, uh, and then we did that. Uh, and that's that's basically it. That's the story. It's a story of like my, the one of the big reasons I love my wife so much is she made this giant sacrifice for me. She she basically gave up a year of her you know youth uh, and potential relationships and also moved a, a a a literal thousand miles. It's about a thousand miles from Chicago to Massachusetts to be with me. And that gesture was just always so big and so powerful to me uh, that I was like, how I, – I, I literally feel like I can never pay her back for the 1,000 miles and the 365 days that she sacrificed for me. So that's my Across the Universe. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Sean. It's nice to get a little romantic sometimes, guys. That was sweet. Also, let's talk about Grant Morrison's X-Men comics sometime. Yes. Yes, me too. All right, guys, we got one more speaker uh, from Klingon Christmas Carol. It is its creator and director, and I'm also going to ask him to speak a little bit about the show. It's Christopher Kidder Mostrom. Chris, why don't you tell these fine folks where you can see Clean on Christmas Carol, how you get tickets, and I mean, it's probably obvious what it's about, but just in case someone's not totally sure yet what it's about. All right, well, um, the Clean on Christmas Carol uh, is happening at the Raven Theater uh, up in uh, Edgewater this year, and we're on the small stage for the first time ever. Uh, we, we wrote this show in 2007, um, and it started as a joke. I run a theater company that's basically supposed to do translated works from other languages into English, but we thought, let's do something for a fundraiser going the other way, into a different language, and we'll do it at the holidays because, you know, it's the end of the fiscal year and we need money. (laughs) Um, And and so we kicked around a few ideas, and one of the thoughts was, let's do Dickens in Pig Latin. Um, (laughs) There had recently been in the Minnesota Fringe Festival that year something called Aixpierche, and so we didn't want to look like we were piggybacking on that. The company at that point was uh, located in the Twin Cities, and um, so we didn't want to look like a copycat. And one of my friends, who was also a board member of the company, threw out, well, let's do it in Klingon. And he thought he was joking. <laughs> Six months later, uh, my, my then-girlfriend and I wrote the first ever full-length play performed in the Klingon language. Um, it still remains the only full-length play. <laughs> it's not the only one translated, but it is the only one performed. Um, we also have the dubious honor of being the only company to perform uh, a large portion of a Klingon Hamlet 
on the Star Trek VI Blu-ray. Um, they couldn't, uh, Paramount couldn't find anyone who had performed Hamlet in Klingon because it's something that's four hours long uh, in English that most people don't understand that way. <laughs> um, and, and so they, they thought, well, what the heck, we'll go with these guys that are doing Dickens. And, and anyway, the, the play has evolved over the last uh, eight years into uh, something that now rules my life. Um, but it, it has also evolved in a wonderful way. Relocating to Chicago, we expanded it to an hour and a half. Uh, we put in two scenes that we had left out originally. Um, and up from 2007 through last year, it was basically pretty much exactly the same production. Uh, even though we shifted personnel when we re- relocated cities, uh, it was the same thing same blocking, same set, same costumes. And then this year we decided, well, hell, we're in a new space. Let's shake it all up. Uh, So we got a completely new cast. We overhauled it this year. Uh, Completely new costumes. Uh, We're doing sort of a steampunk Klingon. (laughs) Yes! Just for you, Sean. Um, uh, we're doing, uh, we have our first multi-level set. It's really exciting, so I hope you guys come to see it. It's going to be wild and crazy. Our, our fight choreographer told you his tale about being a Star Trek fan earlier. There are flips galore happening this year. Uh, it's unbelievable. So uh, it opens the 30th of November, runs through the 29th of December. Um, and we even have some late night shows this year on the 14th, 21st, and 28th, which are only $20 as opposed to our normal 30. So, um, please come and join us for those. We'll also have some wonderful guest stars, which we're arranging right now, um, who will get to cameo as Klingons as well this year. Um, yeah, so there's that. Um, so for those of you who, uh, who know me and, and I guess, for those of you who don't, you're about to find out. Uh, I turn 40 one week from today. Um, most of my life's uh, birthdays haven't been important, and honestly, this one isn't either. Um, I measure my time of my life uh, by different things than years. I measure it by when I lived in certain places, because we moved around a lot when I was a kid, and then I haven't really stopped doing that as an adult. Um, and then the other major thing that changed my universe completely was the birth of my daughter. And everything since that time has been according to how old my daughter is at any given point in time. That's my marker. So I was doing a little math over there because I knew how old my daughter was when this happened. And I can now tell you that seven years and 11 months ago, I killed Roger. Before we go further into that confession, I need to go back to the same age that my daughter was in my timeline. Now, my daughter at that time, when I killed Roger, was five and a half. When I was five and a half, two major things happened in my life. The first one was my diehard crush on Smurfette. (laughs) That blonde, blue-eyed, blue-skinned, beauty. <laughs> she, <laughs> I got to tell you, in the early 80s, uh, this was specifically 1980, but um, in, in 1980, uh, 
and, and the subsequent years and the years on, I guess, immediately preceding, ABC, NBC, and CBS each season put on a special on a Friday night promoting their Saturday night or Saturday morning cartoon lineup. And you could watch the fall lineup come out by staying up late if your parents let you to see what was going to come out that fall on the cartoons. And they would do little features and they got the people from Hanna-Barbera on one of their features. And my mom read the thing in TV Guide that said that this was going to be happening and she was really excited that I was going to be able to stay up and see the people behind. The people behind the Smurfs. Now this included the animators. Uh, Wide World of Disney was on every week as well. So it wasn't the first time I'd seen animation happen. And so I had no illusions. There was no... um, Suspension. Well, there was suspension of disbelief. It, it was not a five-and-a-half-year-old kid really, really believing that these were real. But, perhaps self-delusionally, I wanted to believe that Smurfette was real. <laughs> but my mom knew that I had this interest, and, and so she let me stay up to watch the preview and watch the special thing about Hanna-Barbera and how they created the Smurfs for America. And they had the voice actors on. And at that point, little Chris's heart crumbled. Mm -hmm. Because Smurfette was voiced, at that time, by a 67-year-old lady. (laughs) That didn't have blonde hair. (laughs) She may have at one point, I don't know. She also, obviously, did not have blue skin. And I couldn't tell if her eyes were blue or not. What was worse was that she doesn't always voice Smurfette. Smurfette sometimes, when she isn't available, was voiced by a man, a middle-aged man, the one who voices hefty Smurf. (laughs) Chris's little heart crushed a little bit more. Also that year, well, really I have to backtrack a year or two before that, uh, in fact, three years before I was born. Uh, so I have no clear recollection of this. <laughs> but there was a folk music group in the late 60s. They put out a children's album called Peter, Paul, and Mommy. And on that album was their one, number one hit, Puff the Magic Dragon. And when I was four, I listened to that record over and over again. And Puff... Puff had been abandoned by that bastard Jackie Paper. (laughs) And he had no friends. And so I needed an imaginary friend, and my imaginary friend was Puff. That same year was uh, the year that I lost Smurfette. Was the year that I went to kindergarten. And I didn't really want to play with the other kids. I wanted to play with Puff. And... The other kids didn't find that to be okay. They teased me, not surprisingly. And eventually I decided I didn't like that, and so I just discarded and left behind Puff the Magic Dragon, just like Jackie Paper did. 
that's more bittersweet now, I suppose, than it was at the time. It, at the time, it was pretty flip. I just, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> so, when I had my daughter, well, when my ex-wife had my daughter, I had little to do with that, the actual birthing process. Um, my world changed. My universe changed. My perspective on everything changed. But there are certain promises you make to yourself that you will not do the things your parents did. The movie Spy Kids happened much later. I have no idea when. I just know when my daughter saw it. And she saw it at her preschool, and she was really enamored with it. And we went to Wendy's one day, and the toy in the kids' meal was a little wrist communicator thing, not unlike you would see in Dick Tracy or uh, Star Trek communicator or that new Google iPhone thing. <laughs> but anyway, it's it was her thing, and she thought, in her way, that someone was in there. And she got this from the movie, from Spy Kids, and she thought the guy in there was named Roger. And she would talk to Roger. And she would take orders from Roger. And she would argue with Roger. I, in my, ooh, neat, my daughter's really into this thing, dad thing, I got her walkie-talkies for Christmas when she was five and a half. And we waited and really excited for her to open that one so that we could play with her and have her go upstairs and I'd stay downstairs and talk to her. And and she opened it and she was excited. And then I explained to her how it worked. And I told her that after you understand what I say, say Roger back. And it was at that moment that I watched my daughter go through what I did in kindergarten when my mom took Smurfette away from me and when I threw out Puff the Magic Dragon and I realized in that moment that I killed Roger and changed her universe forever as well. Uh, you guys, everyone go see Klingon Christmas Carol, listen to Improvised Star Trek. Also, if you have time after those two things, you could come to Nerdalogs, but, you know, you could also come to that. Okay, we're going to take it out. Claire wants to intro this song. I do, because uh, a lot of the things that people were talking about was making me think of a uh, particular mathematic proof that gives me some comfort, which... Is how I roll. Hey. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's basically a proof saying that uh, you can have an infinite set of numbers that, that does not encompass all infinite numbers. So uh, in, to explain that, uh, between the numbers 0 and 1, there are an infinite number of numbers, even though they don't encompass the number 2. And the reason I was thinking about that is because a lot of people are talking about this great expansive universe or multiverse as, you, as it were, uh, about encompassing all these different possibilities. And, and in, in my life, all I have is between that number zero and one, but I still have an infinite number of things that I can do between those two numbers. So that's what I was thinking about during this show.
That's great. I don't. How does it relate to the song? It's just. (laughs) 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 All right. Let's do this. 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 You knew this was coming. Across the universe Some sorrow waves of joy Are drifting through my open mind Possessing and caressing me Jai Guru Like a million eyes, they call me on and on across the universe. Thoughts meander like a restless wind inside a letterbox. They tumble blindly as they make their way across the universe. Friedman. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Why have-
Everybody! Everybody! This has been a Nerdalogs production. For more on the Nerdalogs and our shows, please go to www.nerdalogs.com. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.